talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Captain Ed Mamet and Detective Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cop Talk. My name is Kevin Schroeder, retired NYPD detective, and I'm here with my co-host, retired captain of the NYPD, Ed Mamet. Hello, WABC listeners. It's great to be here again with Kevin and our terrific guest. So today's guest is Sam Katz. Sam Katz is with the Detective Endowment Association since 1997. Her title is Executive Assistant to the President of the Detective Endowment Association. She's the writer, editor, and also known as Miss Moneypenny at the DEA. <laughs> she writes and edits the DEA magazine, The Gold Shield, the DEA website, legislative memos, political endorsements, advertisements, editorials, etc. Many, many more things that Sam is responsible for down at the DEA. Sam Katz, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, if you gentlemen don't mind, I have to bring something up, and this is very important to all your podcast listeners. At the beginning of the podcast, there's a voiceover announcement, and Ed, he says, Ed Mamet. Now, is it Ed Mamet? Or is it Mamet? It's Ed Mamet, but we never bothered to get it changed. <laughs> so I don't mind. <laughs> but I noticed it, and I'm sure every one of your listeners has been wondering, what's that about? But say love Well, you're not the first to say that. <laughs> okay. oh, Ed Mamet. <laughs> Mamet. Sam, so tell us about your background, please. Let our audience uh, know. It's very eclectic. I'm old, so I've done a lot of things. Uh, when I was young, uh, which was many years ago, I started in uh, radio, actually, at, uh, at, at Group W in my native Philadelphia. I was a desk assistant and production assistant at KYW News Radio in Philly, which is the sister to WINS in New York. And then I got into the Group W Management Training Program and went out. They uh, went out west to Fort Wayne, Indiana. They had a very large, legendary station called WOWO in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it was um, a very iconic institution. As a matter of fact, it was so important in the history of radio that Ken Burns mentioned it as the he, it was the second radio station he mentioned in his eight-part Country Western series because they uh, thrived on not country, but what you would call Americana. It was a top 40 station. and uh, But then I moved <laughs> to New York. <laughs> Biggest mistake of our life. Not moving to New York. I love it here, and I never wanted to leave. But I... Uh, the rival of WABC was WNBC. And unfortunately, in six months, some bad things happened, hashtag me too. And I was literally traumatized out of my career. And that happens. So I wound up in other fields. Sam. Yeah. How did you get the nickname Sam? <laughs> that dates back to my childhood in Philadelphia. I... Uh, I had one of those, oh, she was a wonderful working mother, though. She didn't want to deal with what I wanted, which was big Shirley Temple girls. And she said, absolutely not. You're getting the pixie haircut, you know. And they would drag you to the hairdresser. And, and you'd be squirming like a little kid squirming in the seat. And they'd be sticking you with the scissors. And I was so angry. 
so angry after one particular haircut that a friend of my mother's came by and said, oh, you're, you're, you're Beatrice's little girl. And I said, I'm not a little girl. I'm a little boy and my name is Sam. <laughs> I just had a pixie haircut. I wanted Shirley Temple curls. So that was it. And it stuck. And then... After a certain point, I liked it, and I became a Sam. <laughs> I guess when people call the uh, the office and they ask for Sam Katz, they're surprised when a woman asks. Oh, well, they think oh, it's going to be a, a cigar-chomping old man. Hi, I'm yeah, Sam yeah. Katz. Yeah, speaking of the office, uh, how did you get started with the Detectives Endowment Association, a.k.a. DEA? DEA, the, the original DEA, because we've been around since 1917. Uh, the feds stole our initials. Back when I moved to New York, and then I lost my radio career, I wound up um, in promotion, and I wound up running a f- large film awards program. And for 10 years, I really didn't tune in much to my environment at all. I, my head when I was younger was all about work, all about the job, no matter what the job was. And when... Uh, the F- Focus Awards, which is what I run, when that disbanded after 1990, I actually started tuning into my environment and started looking around. And I was raised in the pristine suburbs of Philadelphia. Nothing was out of place. There was no trash. There was no garbage. I was raised very uh, strict in that regard. I like everything very neat and orderly. And I started looking around. And everything, every piece of public property was vandalized. It was filthy. It was the era where people were stapling gigantic uh, posters, music posters on every lamppost. Everything was a mess. And I started paying attention. And I said, oh, my God, this city could be beautiful, but it looks like a mess. And one day... I was, uh, in the early 90s, I was outside, and uh, the president of the United States was at Lincoln Center. And every corner for multi-block radius had a lot of police. And I started talking to a group of cops. And I grew up never seeing a cop. And it dawned on me that it was a very eclectic group of people. There was one guy with an Italian name, another guy with an Irish name, another guy who was African-American, another guy who was Jewish, another guy who was Asian. And I said, you know, this is not your grandfather's police department. And I started talking to them, and I had a great time talking to them. I had a German shepherd at the time. And I think about a week Or two weeks later, I ran into an auxiliary recruiting table at a street fair up in the 24th Precinct, and I signed up. And that was it. I was an auxiliary, and then I became uh, a member of that community council. Then I became uh, a member of the board and eventually the president of my own precinct community council. And by 1997... I started to wind down on my uh, freelance writing and editing, and I said, where should I be? And I thought, you know, I always wanted to be involved with a labor union. I had had enough of corporate America, and I put the two concepts together, police and union, and I sent resumes and press kits to the five police unions. I didn't know there were five. I think most people don't know that there's five. And I got 
Tom Scotto, who was the president of the DEA on the phone. And he said, you know, I need an executive assistant. I said, well, you know, I never did that. I was always a something else and promotion executive or, you know, radio gal or whatever. And I said, you know, I've been writing. I'm a writer and an editor. He said, well, we need one of those too. <laughs> so I met him. He brought me in. I freelanced at first to make sure we got along. And another freelance client wanted more of my time. And I said, Tom, it's one or the other. And he made me an offer. And so I've been all three things at the DEA, the writer, the editor, and the executive assistant to the president since the fall of 97. What's your typical day like at the DEA? Oh, Ed. <laughs> Do you have a typical day? It's, it could be anything. Uh, you know, we, we have the phones ring. 24-7, actually, but we're only there a certain amount of time to answer it. But we have 18,000 members, about 5,000 actives and and the rest retirees. And everybody needs something different at every given t- moment in time. And there's a, a lot of activities that the union's involved in. And so the needs, whatever needs to be done gets done by the administrative staff. Well, we, we've heard at the DEA, DEA they call you Ms. Moneypenny. <laughs> uh, I very, think, yeah. From, from James Bond. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, that was a joke when I came in. I was also called Nancy Drew a lot when I came <laughs> in because, uh, yeah, our former vice president, Vic Sapulo, pegged me as uh, a, a girl detective. You know, I didn't go, th- I was a civilian. I'm not a detective. I just play one in the office when I can. So all the little cases that come in, lost wallets, people looking for people, that, <laughs> they, that that's a case for Sam. So they, I wind up with it. Sam, what's the most exciting part of your job? The most exciting part? Excite. Well, you know, I love, I love writing about our own members. And I love getting a chance to interview detectives about their cases. And it's, um, you know, I don't know if if the world exciting kind of fits. I'm not out there running around chasing anybody, thank God, with my arthritis. But I really love getting to in-depth interview our members and they're very eclectic, and they cover a lot of fields. And the cases cover a tremendous variety of areas. It could be anything. Homicide, narcotics, uh, fraud, rescues, aviation rescues, boat rescues, crashes, uh, of course, horrible, uh, 9-11. And anything. It could be anything. It could be serial killers. We've had those too. And I just love getting to pick the brains. That's a horrible expression, but I'll use it. Pick the brains of our members and how they became detectives, what motivated them to get into law enforcement, and what they're doing to uh, ease the pain of people who are crime victims. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. 
In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sam, you brought up 9-11. Where were you that day on 9-11? We were, well, a lot of people don't remember that it was primary voting day in New York, and the union had backed very heavily uh, Peter Vallone. So everybody had to make a point of voting, and I did my voting in the office, so I was going to be a little late. Now, the board officers and the delegates were all assembled in Queens, because there was a delegates meeting in Queens, and the plan was to have a quick delegates meeting and then go out in campaign for Peter Vallone. Well, I was at, uh, uh, I voted, and I went to uh, the subway, and I lived near Columbus Circle, and Columbus Circle had gotten trashed by a record company, and there was garbage and posters everywhere, and there were sanitation men cleaning it up. So I stopped to praise them and thank them. And so I was late getting to the office. And when I went into the subway, and I was just mentioning this to Paul DiGiacomo the other way, it was the last day I ever read on a subway train. I used to sit and read. No more. I didn't notice that the train, I was so engrossed in a a, fiction in Esquire magazine that I didn't notice that every time the train stopped, people were getting off. They weren't getting on. And when we started to pull into Chambers Street, the train stopped and the announcer said, there's a police emergency down here, so we're not going to pull in for a, a bit. And, you know, you think police emergency, a water main brog, there's a a robbery, a, a guy fell on the tracks, whatever it is. You don't think a plane hit the tower, tipped towers. And I didn't have any communications device on me that everybody else obviously did because they were getting off. When the train stopped, I looked up, and another man was there and looked up, and we realized, oh, my God, why are we the only two people on this rush hour train that when we got in there was tons of people and now there's nobody but us what what's going on and finally they pulled in they let us out and everybody in the station had their head in the air like you can't see us because it's a podcast but in the air looking up as you walk up the stairs everybody's looking up and what had happened was the first plane had hit and now there was a giant hull in the World Trade Center, and lots of people on this, tons of people on the street buzzing. But it didn't register in my brain because I, 
being involved in the community council. A big complaint on the Upper East and Upper West Side was little airplanes and helicopters. So you think, ah, a helicopter hit or a little plane hit. And finally, it dawned on me that one of those uh, planes could not make this enormous hull that looked like the Jolly Green Giant punched it through the building. And then a groundswell of people, thousands and thousands of people came stampeding. And I literally just turned around and ran to the office and uh, was there when the buildings came down and you could feel it like a earthquake. We own our own building and this it's a small colonial style two-story building, but the whole building shook like an earthquake. And we were there, I was there all day, patching people up, people were coming in, our, our members. And we had to, it, it was very much like a science fiction movie where people were banging on the door trying to get in like a Twilight Zone episode. And we had to keep everybody out because this is a police facility. And, the, uh, you know, we, we, we send people away, but our own members would be coming in. I remember getting the uh, first aid kits and patching people and God, they were covered with with dust and it, it was quite terrifying. Sam, are you registered with the uh, 9-11? Um, I, I am. I, unfort- unfortunately, yes. And we were down, I was down there the next day and we've been down there ever since. And I, I do, I have a assorted breathing conditions. So if people hear me sniffing, it's... Unfortunately, it's chronic sinorhinitis or whatever they call it. Can't help it. Yeah, well, I have the same thing from being down there. I yeah. think all three of us have some. Yeah, some yeah it's uh, something that uh, a lot of our members are not aware of, the resources that are out there for And, and it's everyone. not just for, for members of the service exactly. or first responders. It's for everybody who lived and worked. Lived, worked, right. Day after day after day below Canal Street. Yeah. Exactly. Your career covers everything from business and broadcasting to uh, a major detectives union. Uh, who are the most fascinating people you've uh, you've met? Well, I, I really have to say our own detectives at the NYPD. And by the way, we are not only the largest detectives union in America, we're the largest labor union of police detectives, I believe, in the world. And the... NYPD, of course, has been around for since the 18, I guess officially since the 1850s. There was law enforcement before that in America, but the NYPD itself, uh, I think its anniversary is 1850 something. And the Detective Bureau came into being in 1882. We have a reproduction of that uh, city document on our wall. And the DEA was formed, I guess, officially as a probably a fraternal group mostly in in 1917. And then we used to bargain with the PBA. And in 63, we became separated for our own bargaining unit. So you're talking about 150 years of police detectives. And other than Scotland Yard, who's more famous than a gold shield NYPD detective, nobody. So I've always been interested 
even from my Nancy Drew Day, my real Nancy Drew days as as an eight-year-old, in reading books about detectives. And I loved Arthur Conan Doyle as well. And uh, Sherlock Holmes' daddy. And uh, crime. And and as a matter of fact, in the 1980s when I was uh, running a film awards program, I started collecting. I became very fascinated as a teenager and then as an adult able to collect and study uh, one particular criminal case that dealt with Chicago, the case of Leopold and Loeb. And I became what's considered an expert in that case. And I appeared in a, a number of documentaries on it and stuff. But everything that I read and studied was mostly from a, a defense perspective, from a forensic psychiatric perspective, and not from the law enforcement perspective. So once I adopted that perspective, there's nothing more interesting to me than our own members. You know, you mentioned the uh, the history of the Detective Bureau. You may not be aware of that, but my thesis for my master's degree was about the organization and history of the Detective Bureau. Right. It's on file at the Municipal Refer- Reference Center. Okay. And um, the, the interesting thing about the Detective Bureau, it has gone through so many changes you know, over the years. Thomas Burns was the first official chief of the detectives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he did was very interesting. To, to um, he, he was very involved with the people on Wall Street. And he sent detectives down to the stock market area, and they would arrest anybody that they thought was a criminal on site, just like that. <laughs> and that's how they kept That's how they kept it. Uh, they called it the, he called it the, the, the death zone. <laughs> that if a known criminal crossed a certain street, I don't recall what street it was, they'd be arrested just for being there. That's well, <laughs> well, I, I suppose if you looked like you didn't have stocks and bonds that you didn't deserve to be there. Well, I, I, thank goodness that's no longer in effect. Or especially the way we're dressed today, we'd all be arrested. Yeah. But it's it's pretty casual since the pandemic. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I love the history. Aspects, and I don't get a lot of time to read or write about it. And I wish, I wish I did. <laughs> but it's it's very hard to find two minutes of my day where I I can concentrate on on writing. Okay. I think I actually have a copy of your thesis, and I think you gave so it to I, me. I think it's at the office. Ago. I gave it to, um, uh, to I think they have to Tom Scotto or uh, Mike Palladino. Oh, okay. It's well, there. I yeah, I've, I've, I've built the first uh, archive. We didn't have any hmm. archives when I got to the DEA, and I made people get in the habit of saving things for the archives, and I built Line of Duty death archives. And when we refinished the basement of the building, I I made uh, Mike and Vic let me get a real-time capsule, a stainless steel time capsule, which I filled with, with little detective pin tchotchkes and a copy of a, uh, a dupe shield and copies of the magazine and I wrote a special memo and I put it in this stainless steel time capsule and we buried, we had the construction crew when we finished the basement of the building bury it there so that if a thousand years from now spacemen come and want to find out <laughs> what what the 1990s to the present is like, they will find it <laughs> Sam, 
2018, you wrote your memoir. Um, ask me how this happens. Can you tell us about that book? Well, I did. In uh, you know, as I mentioned, I had a, a terrible experience losing my broadcasting career. And it was somebody who used to be on the station, as a matter of fact. Well, he was simulcast. But this was when he was much younger, 41, was an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. His name was, and still is, even though he's dead, Don Imus. And I buried what happened to me for many, many years, 29 to be exact. And in 2010... I went to a reunion. I I'd really not stayed in touch with most people in radio, and most people who knew me did not know I had ever been in radio. And in 2010, a good friend in Philadelphia called me, and she said, there's going to be a 45th all-news anniversary of KYW. All the Westinghouse stations dated back to the 1920s, but the format of all-news was really post-World War II concept. And... Uh, I was convinced to finally, uh, as a matter of fact, Mike Palladino convinced me to go. He said, you'll hate yourself. He said, you'll beat yourself up. If you don't go, you need to go, you know. And I went to this reunion, and I had a, a glorious time. But a lot of questions came up, like, so why did you leave, you know? And I, and I, I didn't really have the right answers. And I came back to New York, and 12 days later, I was retiring from my volunteer position as the president of the 20th Precinct Community Council. I had been on the president of the council or vice president for 16 years. So I worked in the office all day and then played around with the police all night trying to clean up the neighborhood. And I finally needed time back to do some writing of my own, you know, on my, of my own uh, volition. And I was saying my big fare thee well, uh, that night, it was June uh, 16th, 2010, I believe it was. Uh, no, uh, well, something like that. And anyway, I, uh, a friend came up to me and made a very innocuous, innocuous comment with the name Don Imus in it, you know, because apparently Imus lived in my neighborhood, and who knew? Who knew? And uh, I literally imploded. I just completely imploded. And I had this meeting to lead, and so I made it go away again. And But when I got home and put down all the accolades, they had gotten me all kinds of proclamations and things, and I imploded, and this time it stayed. And I was hit with very hard, latent post-traumatic stress disorder and everything. And all the memories that I had suppressed for 29 years came back. And I batted out uh, notes and writing and a, I think in screenplay format, and I batted out a script, but I pretty much um, sat on it. You can sneeze, Kevin. I sat on it for years, and then, to my surprise, because I thought this stuff was over in corporate America, and to my surprise, the Me Too movement started happening, and people all were all recounting their own issues and who knew you know i thought i thought pretty much that level of sexual harassment and abuse had been finished after the anita hill hearings but who knew that it was still going on i mean to the point of you know assault and rape and um so by 2015 i said you know i really need to do something and 
the publishing industry had changed so much and this thing called self-publishing and the concept that everything was computerized now and art direction was done on computer and all the systems of communication changed. So I shot out emails to a couple of friends of mine who were art directors. I said, who wants to take this book creation journey with me? And a friend of mine named Christina Iliopoulos, she's, a mar- she's actually a filmmaker and a director and does great graphic design, said, I'll go. I'll take this journey with you. And we worked for three years, on, and it's a massive coffee table book. It's not a traditional memoir. It's really a cross between a work of art and a book, and there's only 150 of them, and they're quite massive. They're nine pounds each, but it's a, it's called Ask Me How This Happens, a script, a scrapbook, a memoir. And the title came up because in 2015, 16, when the, I was reading an article about uh, the um, Bill Cosby case. And people were saying, why does it take so long? Why does it take so Like, why do people bury this stuff? And, and it take, And I said, huh, ask me how that happens. And I said, oh, my God. And when I, I read to my book's notes, and that became this. And, and it, because it takes a really long time to grapple sometimes with uh, things you need to bury. Ask me how this happens. How can our audience order, order well, the Well, uh, if you want to actually look at it, because it is qu- it's quite pricey. There's only 150 of them. So I admit they're, they're, it's more of an art price than a book price. But I have an Etsy store. And actually, if you just Google the title, Ask Me How This Happens, Sam Katz, uh, it'll co- crop up. It's on my Etsy store. I really always... Uh, sold it by word of mouth and social media. But I posted on my Etsy shop, um, uh, which is I'm divesting myself of a lifetime of being a collector and a saver and always loved antiques and art and stuff. So I opened a little Etsy place. And you could see some photos and read a description and see it there. But if you ever wanted to spend 480 pages and a bunch of hours with Don Imus and Sam Katz, that's your that's the thing that's you can read. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Sam, you've worked you actually work with the greatest some of the greatest detectives in the world. Absolutely. Is there any particular story that stands out you'd like to tell us about? Well, I'm sure I, there's I, many. I I will tell you one that really was a, a tremendous case, but it didn't get the publicity that it would have gotten had it happened after 9-11. It happened before 9-11. And it was a case of Palestinian terrorists who were planning to blow up the Brooklyn subway hub. And what was tremendous about this was that nobody, it actually started with an immigrant, who a Palestinian immigrant. who He was just a normal, nice guy. But when people come to the United States, and this is really a hundred and something years in the making, because it happened with Italians and Jews, and everybody comes to America, their um, ethnic associations and their religious associations help immigrants by setting them up with people in their own ethnic group. And in this case, a Palestinian man, was he needed a place to live, and he was set up. 
I guess why his mosque or whatever, to move in with two other Palestinians. And this man spoke very little English, but he figured out that his roommates were terrorists and they were building bombs with this plan to blow up the hub. And he knew he couldn't say anything to them, like, don't do that, because they'd kill him. They were planning to blow up as many people as possible. He knew that his life was expendable. But he, so one night, when it became clear that this was the night that they were going to take action, he, he waited till they fell asleep, and he ran out of his apartment. And he didn't speak English, and he just grabbed the first two people in uniform he saw, and they were Long Island Railroad cops. Now, I guess they're called MTA cops, but they were, that's what they were called. At the time, this was in the late 1990s. I think it was 97, 98. And he was screaming to them, bomb, bomb. And and these, you know, they didn't dismiss him as a EDP or something. They went and they got two local precinct cops. And the precinct cops didn't drop the ball either. And they took him back to the detective squad and the squad guys brought in a translator and he told them this story of that and the ESU was called and the bomb squad was called and by the time the bomb squad was called in now it's in the wee hours of the morning the ESU went in busting this and they had a shootout with these guys this guy threw himself on a live switch oh my god they got this device, it was a live device, out, got into the containment vehicle of the bomb squad. They took it to Rodman's neck neck range. By the time they dismantled it, it was 11 o'clock in the morning now at this point, and and it was live. And these guys, had anybody dropped the ball on this long chain of command from from this immigrant screaming at anybody he could see on the street, all the way to this dismantling of this live bomb. Had anybody dropped the ball, that subway hub would have been blown sky high. And it was an amazing story. And I submitted a whole, this whole litany of people to top cops in Washington, D.C. for NAPO, the National Association of Police Organizations, that gives top cop awards every year. Well, NAPO had to narrow it down because it was just, too many people. And they narrowed it down to ESU and a bomb and bomb score, NYPD. They narrowed it down. And they won. And uh, however, the brass at the NYPD at the time got a little perturbed because they didn't nominate them. And, they, and Tom Scotto, who was the president of NAPO, of course gave me up immediately to the Deputy Police Commissioner, and it became quite a uh, a political uh, a dogfight. And a, a woman who she's now passed away. Her name was Jennifer Hunt. Wrote a whole book about this, about this about political infighting over this tremendously uh, amazing case. And as I said, because this happened before nine eleven. Not as much attention was paid to it, but it was phenomenal, phenomenal that every law enforcement officer involved didn't dismiss this guy as some screaming EDP running around screaming bomb, bomb, because he really didn't speak any 
other English. And this man, I'm not sure where he is now, maybe in witness protection for all I know. He was a hero. Every person in there was such a major hero. They prevented that. That's that's a great story, and that's one of many stories with the NYPD detectives. Yeah. I remember that case. I was still in the department when it happened. At the time, yeah. Yes. There's, when they say there's 8 million stories in the Naked City, that is no joke. Captain? Well, I think it's been a great interview, Sam. Thank and, you for uh, having me. Sam, we first met, uh, if you recall, yeah. <laughs> 2003 when I was elected delegate uh, for the Midtown North Detectives. Exactly. And you've been a great friend Thank you. since that day. I'm very happy to say we're very good friends today. Thank you. And I thank love you. you. For, thank you. We love you, too. We and you do you. great charity work. Have you? Well, you've had little Stevie on and all your, yes, thank all your you. fundraising. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we try to help out the widows and children, uh, like Stevie's been doing for many years, yeah. as well as uh, Arms Wide Open, yeah. uh, two great foundations, organizations, and yeah. charities. Yeah. Uh, but. Thank you so much, Sam, for being here today. Well, thank you for having me here. And I just want to say one other sure. thing, if I may. Uh, I heard on one of the shows you mentioned uh, a wonderful movie that actually was a play. It was called Detective Story. And it was starred Kirk Douglas and Eleanor oh, Parker. That's that. what it was called, Detective Story. Yeah. And I want you to know that that playwright, Sidney Kingsley, was a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. He, in order for him to write that, he was the police commissioner at the time in the 1940s. I think it was Louis Valentine. Let him get embedded with Midtown North Squad, the historic precinct that still yes. stands. Well, it was the 18th, the 18th Squad. And the 18th yes. Squad, yes. but Midtown right. and And they let him be a part, you know, hang out and watch the famous Midtown North do their thing because it's always yes. a showcase. What could be more showcase than smack in the middle of Manhattan? Midtown Manhattan. So exactly. I just have to give a big shout out to Midtown North. Well, that was Thank a great movie with Eleanor Parker, William. It ben is a great movie. William Bendix, great, uh, and Kirk Douglas. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, a lot of great character actors. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but God bless the NYPD. God Absolutely. bless all detectives. Thank you again, Sam. Thank you. And uh, what a pleasure. So. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to another episode of Cop Talk. If you could follow us on at Cop Talk WABC, that's at Cop Talk WABC. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe out there. Thank you. <laughs>